Good morning. Welcome again. Uh, we are continuing Matthew chapter 9. It's page 814 if you're in one of the Blue Church Bibles. Uh, you might remember that we are in a stretch of Matthew uh, where we have 10 miracles that are demonstrating Jesus' authority uh, right on the heels of his Sermon on the Mount where he declared his authority. Uh, in the midst of these 10 miracles, you, you pretty much, Matthew seems to like groups of three, and so he does lots of things in threes. Uh, you have three miracles, and then you have Jesus talking to a couple of different people about what it means to be a disciple, and then you have three more miracles. And then right now we have um, three arguments after those three miracles, before we get to the final three miracles. Um, if you were wondering why I said there was three, 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 and there's actually ten miracles, that's because one of the miracles is sort of two miracles. So it's nine or ten, depending on how you count them. Um, anyways, Matthew chapter 9, we're at verses 14 to 17. This is the last of the three arguments that Jesus is having uh, on his break from miracles. Matthew nine fourteen. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for speaking your word to us. Your word is precious. It's more valuable than all the gold in the world. Show us the value of what you have to say to us this morning. Uh, teach us the deep joy that we should have now that your son Jesus is with us. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. A few years ago, I went to a, a retreat for pastors uh, where the theme of the retreat was on the Psalms. Uh, we had teachings on it and discussions all about the Psalms. If you're not familiar with them, the Psalms are a large collection, pretty much at the center of the Bible, uh, of prayers and poems that God has given to us uh, to teach us about how he wants to be worshipped and how we can pray to him, how we can come to him in all different states of life. Uh, one of the main points of the speaker at the retreat was that there's basically three kinds of psalms. He said there's psalms of sadness, there's psalms of anger, and there's psalms of joy. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me the most at that retreat was another pastor there during one of the discussions uh, who he was a pastor of a church in, somewhere in Brooklyn uh, that was mostly made up of young hipster type people. And uh, he said, you know, this is really interesting what we're talking about, about the anger and the sadness and the joy. He said, you know, in my church, uh, the young hip people really connect with all this stuff about being sad and being angry. Uh, but this stuff about being joyful feels pretty phony to them. Uh, sadness and anger feel authentic. It feels real to them. Uh, they were skeptical of embracing the totality of the emotional life that God lays out for us in the Psalms and in the rest of the Bible. Uh, he thought that maybe part of it was because many of them had grown up in churches that were excessively cheesy and sentimental and happy-clappy, uh, trying to portray the Christian life like it's all about feeling great and feeling wonderful and having you know, great things happen to you all the time. But the main thing for them, he thought, you know, given the way the world uh, was and is and at least seemed to them, uh, it seemed phony to them to be joyful. It seemed shallow 
to be glad in a world like we're living in. Last week we saw how one of the common features of Jesus' ministry was him partying with very bad people. Uh, We saw last week uh, how Jesus offended a group of people called the Pharisees, uh, who with very good motivations thought that God uh, was far more interested in disciplined people and pious people than he was in degenerate losers and scoundrels. They thought it was dangerous to hang around wicked people, to get too close to them, to maybe possibly give them the impression that you approved of what they were doing. Now this week... Uh, we have another story, a related story, about how a slightly different group of people uh, think that Jesus' celebratory feasts suggest that he cannot be taken seriously. Like the Brooklyn hipsters, this group of people thinks that Jesus is just not sad enough. That Jesus is being too flippant about the state of the world. uh, That he is too casual about the demands and the disciplines of the truly authentic spiritual life. But as Jesus has done in his two previous conflicts over the last couple of stories, Jesus again pushes back on them. He says, you fail to understand that I have ushered in something new with God's dealings with his creation. Uh, Jesus' main point here is that this new state of affairs means that joy should be the first and the primary posture of anybody who knows what he's come to do. Now, who are these people? Who's this new group of people? Verse 14 tells us that they are the disciples of John. They come and they say, why are we and the Pharisees fasting? Some of uh, texts here, some of the original textual tradition, maybe says, why do we fast so often? Why do we and the Pharisees do this so much? But you and your disciples don't fast. Uh, They are followers of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, Jesus' uh, predecessor, this great prophet who prepared Israel for Jesus' coming. Uh, John understood that his own ministry was supposed to dovetail perfectly with Jesus' superior ministry. Uh, We hear about him back in Matthew chapter 3, where he was out in the wilderness preaching about how Israel needed to get right with God so that they could be prepared for the imminent arrival of God's kingdom. So they could be prepared for the imminent coming of God's messianic king, Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist is going to pop up later in the Gospel of Matthew. uh, But the last thing that we heard about him was that he had been arrested and imprisoned for denouncing the local ruler's sexual sin. But his students are still around, we can see here. Uh, John the Baptist's students are still around even while he's in jail. Uh, They're still working. They're still praying, still trying to help Israel respond appropriately to the coming of Jesus. Now, one of the ways that they've been doing this is by fasting. Uh, They have been voluntarily abstaining from food and or drink. Uh, Fasting, of course, is a feature of religions all over the world and its history. Uh, But in the Bible specifically, fasting is an expression of sadness that's meant to drive you and drive you deeper into deeper prayer. Under the Old Testament law of Moses, Uh, as a way of expressing grief and repentance over sin, God required Israel to fast once a year uh, on a day called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Uh, So they were required one day a year to be fasting over their sin, to express grief over it. Uh, But it was also assumed that at other times, particularly very bad times, uh, the Jewish people would also sometimes choose to fast on top of the one day they were required to fast. By the first century, by the time we get to the coming of Jesus, 
you have groups like the Pharisees and apparently uh, the disciples of John the Baptist uh, who have added quite a few fasts to the original one day a year schedule. The Pharisees fasted two days a week as part of their broader system that we heard about last week of praying for and seeking the spiritual and the social and the personal renewal of Israel. They said, well, if fasting one day a year is good, you know, maybe we should amp it up. Let's do a lot more fasting. What could go wrong with that? Uh, so John the Baptist's disciples uh, see Jesus and his disciples attending these lavish parties. And unlike the spectacularly self-disciplined Pharisees, they do not see Jesus preaching or talking about or practicing any kind of rigorous regimen of disciplines. And they say, what gives? How can you be so worldly, Jesus? How can you be so shallow, given how bad things are? Uh, they say, don't you realize how awful it all is out there? Is this really a time for partying? And Jesus says, well, yes, it is. It is a time for partying. John's disciples understandably think that desperate times call for desperate measures. They think that any religious teacher worth his salt, not to mention the Messiah himself, should be radical. They should be even more radical than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a very radical dude. And so they look at Jesus and they say, what's with this guy? He's just out having fun all the time. He's partying with all these crazy people. But Jesus says, oh, that's fine. That's, that's well and good. But you need to check your watch, so to speak. Jesus says, you have the wrong time. He says in verse 15, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? He's using this illustration to help them understand the times they're now living in. He says, wouldn't it be inappropriate for the groomsmen and the bridesmaids to be moping around on their best friend's wedding day? Uh, I don't know about any of you and your weddings. Uh, maybe we have particularly strange friends and family. But we had two different people for two totally different reasons leave our wedding early because they were mad about not feeling appreciated enough. And it was really inappropriate, kind of humorously so, looking back on it. Jesus is saying, isn't that crazy that that would ever happen? It happened to me. But um, <laughs> Jesus is saying that would be really bad. Uh, if you saw the best man, you know, right before the wedding, posting selfies on Instagram, you know, looking really sad and emotional, uh, you would say, man, what's wrong with that guy? Uh, it is time to celebrate something beautiful. It's time to celebrate something good. And so Jesus says here, he says, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the groom. Uh, these are my groomsmen. These are my wedding guests. And so, of course, they're happy. Of course, we're having a good time. He's defending his disciples by using this illustration about how ridiculous it would be to mope around at a wedding. But it's not any ordinary illustration. Uh, biblically, the image of the coming of the bridegroom is a very loaded image. Uh, earlier in the service, our reading was from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, which is one of many passages where God describes himself as a faithful groom. Uh, and he describes Israel as his wayward, adulterous wife. We heard, Israel, we heard Isaiah say, your maker is your husband. And then he goes on. God says there, for a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. Later on in the book of Isaiah, God says this, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Uh, the entire Old Testament book of Hosea is one long extended meditation on this whole theme of God being the faithful and long-suffering groom. 
At one point, God promises a future time of renewal, the same thing that Isaiah is promising. Uh, In Hosea, God says this, In that day you will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. In these passages, God is promising that he will bring his bride back to himself, that he will transform her so that she will love him just like he's always loved her. So when Jesus says, I am the bridegroom, he is making an enormous claim about himself. He's making an enormous claim about what he has now come to do in the world. It's on the same level as what we heard a couple weeks ago, where Jesus openly and unapologetically claimed to possess God's authority to forgive sins on earth. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's not just announcing that God is restoring people to himself, uh, but Jesus says, I have come to bring it about in myself and through myself. When Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom, he is also behind that saying, I am the king. That God has ushered in his kingdom of redemption and renewal, Jesus is saying, is a cause for great rejoicing. Even the greatest and the happiest wedding is only a faint glimmer of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Jesus has not come to give us religious teachings, to reboot our political system, or to reflect on his own experience of God. Jesus has come to restore our relationship with God, to reconcile us and our universe to our creator. There's nothing more fundamental or important than knowing and loving God. And so there's nothing more joyful than being brought back to that God to know him and to love him forever. And so Jesus says, of course, everyone's rejoicing. Of course, my friends are happy. The bridegroom is here. But Jesus says, they're not always going to be rejoicing. This is a time for great joy, but it's not going to be marked only by joy. Look at verse 15. It says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. I think Jesus is here primarily referring to his crucifixion uh, when the disciples are going to be horrified by his shocking defeat and his humiliating execution. They're going to panic and abandon him. Even though, as you will see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, even though Jesus had been warning them about it and saying, this is going to happen, but don't worry, I'm going to come back from the dead afterwards. It's, this is the first place in, go- in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus indicates that he and they are going to be undergoing this traumatic suffering together. But his resurrection a couple days later is going to restore and deepen their joy. Uh, This is part of what's going on at the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking about something similar in his last kind of address to the disciples about how they're going to be sad, but their joy is going to be restored to them. Uh, The cross is going to be horrible, but even more than that, the resurrection is going to be wonderful. And even though Jesus is going to ascend into heaven a few weeks after the resurrection, so that in a sense Jesus is again taken away from his people, uh, he also, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, promises, right before his ascension, he promises that I will be with you forever, all the way to the end of history. I'm with you. Just like he says here, the bridegroom is with his friends. By and through his spirit, the bridegroom is always going to be with his beloved bride, the church. 
later in the New Testament, uh, the church is going to be described repeatedly as the temple of God's very presence. Sometimes uh, the New Testament talks about individual Christians being the temple of God's spirit. Sometimes it talks about the whole body of the church together being the temple of God's spirit. The point is that God is with us. God is here. The bridegroom is with us by the spirit. But even so, there is still a place for grief and sorrow in the Christian life today. Uh, This isn't really the main point of what Jesus is talking about here. His emphasis is on the joy that he's come to bring. But behind it is the sadness. That is a reality. Jesus says that the disciples will fast. Again, I think it's primarily referring to the grief of the crucifixion. But the New Testament is very clear that while the Christian life is primarily shaped by the resurrection, it is still always shaped by by the cross. We live, the New Testament teaches, we live in the overlap of two worlds at the same time. We are still living in this world of death and sin and suffering, but it's also now being invaded by Jesus' resurrection world of life and righteousness and restoration. They're both uh, experiences for us at the same time. And so there is a place for grief and lament in the Christian life. Uh, There is a problem with churches who only talk about the Christian life as if it were one long endless victory of happiness and life hacks and families that are all wonderful and great. There is a place for suffering and grief and lament in the Christian life. Jesus acknowledges that sometimes we will express this grief through the spiritual discipline of fasting, of voluntarily choosing not to eat. Uh, Jesus, if you you might remember, already actually instructed us about how to do that. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about fasting a little bit, about how to do it, if you're going to do it. Uh, His main emphasis, though, unlike the Pharisees when he talks about how to fast, is that you should do it secretly. You should do it discreetly. The Pharisees like to show off that they were fasting. Jesus says, if you're going to fast, do it in a way that nobody knows you're doing it. Do it just for God alone. Uh, But Jesus also gives his disciples a great deal of freedom in how they fast, in how they uh, express their uh, spiritual relationship to him. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does demand very serious, even radical obedience from his disciples. But at the same time, Jesus is not impressed by the Pharisees or by John the the Baptist students' rigorous religious programs and practices. Jesus does not seem terribly enthused by them. Uh, He is not bothered by their accusation that he is not simple enough or serious enough or radical enough. With the arrival of God's kingdom in and through the bridegroom, Jesus, he's saying something new has come. The world has been transposed into a different and a happier key. And so Jesus says that the practices and the structures and the systems that were appropriate for a gloomier time now need to be set aside. That's what he's getting at in verses 16 and 17. uh, These puzzling images about new clothing and new wine. The bridegroom has arrived, even though, yeah, there's going to be still times for sadness and lament. The bridegroom has arrived. We should rejoice. Uh, And so because the bridegroom has arrived, even with the sadness, everything's changed. Everything's new now. He says, nobody takes a piece of unshrunk cloth and puts it on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Uh, Clothing compared to most people in history is so cheap for us now that many of us don't bother with patching old clothing but you get the basic idea. I mean, the same thing would happen today. If you had an old piece of clothing and you took a a new piece of cotton patch and you sewed it on to your original shirt, you run it through the dryer, the patch, of course, is going to shrink and ruin your shirt even worse than it was before. Uh, The wine imagery is getting at something similar. 
In the ancient world, they um, made and kept wine in leather pouches. And if you used an old stiff pouch to ferment new wine, uh, the fermentation process would cause it to burst because it had no flexibility. Uh, Something like uh, what one of you did at my house recently. You put a can of soda in the freezer and forgot about it, and I found it a couple (laughs) days later. I don't know which one of you it was, but I know it was one of you. The basic idea is that something profoundly new has come with Jesus. And that if you try to cram him into the typical way of doing things, we are only going to destroy ourselves. It's primarily, I think, I mean, this is, it's tricky to figure out exactly what he's talking about. I think it's primarily a reference to the systems and the structures of the Old Testament that have now been fulfilled in Christ. The calendar, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and all those kinds of things. Uh, The New Testament is very clear that the Old Testament is not bad. Uh, It was the perfect expression of God's will for humanity at a distinct stage of him dealing with humanity. Jesus continues to participate in all the systems of the Old Testament. He continues to obey every single part of the Old Testament law to the very end of his life. But it was a stage. Jesus is what all of it was aiming toward. So that now that he's come, it would not only be foolish, but it would actually be very destructive to fixate on it like it was the climax of God's revelation and dealings with humanity. Uh, We recently raised monarch butterflies from caterpillars on our kitchen counter. Uh, The idea, I think, is that the New Testament is the butterfly to the Old Testament caterpillar. Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount, I did not come to abolish the Mosaic law, I came to fulfill it. On its own terms, the Old Testament was and is good and lovely. But it was incomplete. Uh, in, the, in the words of the letter to the Hebrews, which is largely occupied with reflecting on what has changed now that Jesus has come, uh, in that letter, uh, it says that the Old Testament was merely a shadow of the glorious things to come. One of the major topics of the New Testament is this wrestling with what is and is not new about the New Testament. Helping Christians to navigate all kinds of temptations to act as though the Old Testament were still binding on them in the same way that it was for Israel until the coming of Jesus. The disciples of John the Baptist, and especially the Pharisees, are very much in danger of missing that the laws and the practices of the Old Testament, such as the requirement to fast at certain times, They're in danger of missing that these were always meant to point forward to Jesus. There is new, amazing wine, Jesus says, but you are clinging to old, stiff pouches that are now well past their usefulness. Now, maybe you are here today and you are not tempted to go back to the Old Testament law and its ceremonies. Although, I do come across Christians who have an unhealthy fascination with Passover seders as though it were some kind of way to get into a deeper spirituality if you really, really want to learn about God. I come across Christians who have an unhealthy fascination with fasting schedules, with clerical garments, with architectural splendor, all these things that characterize the Old Testament. But in a way that all human religion is always tending to do, And in the same way that Israel largely did, even though the Old Testament is always warning them against it, uh, human religion, including Israel in most of its life, tends to fixate 
on outward performance. It tends to fixate on outward disciplines with little regard for the heart and the motivations behind all of it. The default mode of the human heart is to look on our own religious and moral performance to try to earn God's love. Uh, The default mode of the human heart is to be far more interested in what is outwardly spectacular and impressive rather than simple faith, simple dependence on God and his word. I think this is an even deeper danger than the danger to try to still follow the Old Testament. It's a deeper danger and it's a more uh, more alluring and, and uh, deceptive danger to seek to be really hardcore like the disciples of John the Baptist were. Ironically, you know, they're arguing about food. How much can you eat? Uh, all over the New Testament, there's these debates about what can we eat now, what can we not eat. Um, we might look at those and kind of laugh, like, oh, look at these funny laws. But ironically, you know, you look around at our world, somewhere like Austin especially, and you see all these people who are fixated and obsessed with what they eat, and they all look down on each other. Well, I eat this. Well, I don't eat that. I'm a better person because I eat this or I don't eat that. We're still in the same boat. Uh, I heard a, read a really interesting article a few years ago talking about how uh, our civilization, our, our culture today, is far more loose about sexuality where the Bible is much more strict about it. But uh, we are far more strict about food, uh, while the New Testament is much more loose about food. The New Testament says basically, well, you can eat whatever you want. And we say, oh, no, no, you're a bad person if you eat this or that. And we do the opposite with sexuality. There's a deeper danger here of trying to be like the Pharisees or John the Baptist's disciples, of trying to be really hardcore in following God and neglecting uh, the heart, neglecting faith, dependence on God, neglecting love for God. And so we have to always be on danger, are always on guard against the danger of fixating on outward disciplines, on outward performance. We have to be on guard against the danger of making an idol out of our traditions and our practices. Uh, And like I said last week, it's not that outward behavior is unimportant or unnecessary. Uh, Jesus is very much concerned with how we behave. He's very much concerned with behavior that other people can see. And it's not that tradition is inherently wrong or suspect. Sometimes Christians can really just throw out the baby with the bathwater on any kind of tradition, and they like to pretend that you can live without tradition, which is impossible. Tradition is important. Tradition is inescapable. In a limited sense, tradition is even authoritative, even for Protestants. But Jesus is far more concerned with where our hearts are at in it. Jesus is far more concerned that everything we do be driven by a fundamental faith in him. Uh, Not because we're trying to earn God's love, uh, not because we want to impress other people, not just because it's what we've always done, uh, or this is what we used to do when I was a kid, and I remember the church back then being so much more wonderful and having so much of a better place in society. Uh, This fundamental faith that is the most important thing, this fundamental faith, Jesus is saying, should be marked by joy. The bridegroom has come. God has revealed himself to us clearly and climactically in Jesus. We know and we understand today so much more than anyone in Israel ever did. Even though Israel, unlike anywhere else in the world, unlike any other country or nationality in the world, Israel had all kinds of direct contact with God and with his word. But the New Testament says you today, if you're a Christian, you have it so much better than anybody in Israel ever did. It's so much more clear for us. We know so much more. We get to enjoy so much more. And so we should be able to rejoice in that. We should be celebrating, even though, in a way, uh, the Christian life is less spectacular than Israel's life was with its temple and its priests and their clothes and all the sacrifices and all those things. In many ways, the Christian life is more simple. Uh, it's, it's a little more boring, uh, in a sense. 
But the New Testament says it's a lot better. It's something that should cause great joy. And so if you're here today as a Christian, uh, yeah, there's still going to be sadness and lament in your life. That is a normal part of being a Christian, and sometimes we neglect that. But we also need to remember, especially today in this passage, Jesus is saying you're not just people of the cross. Most of all, you're people of the resurrection. That's why we worship Jesus on Sundays. This is the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. It's such a big deal uh, that the, the day of rest, the Sabbath day, moved from Saturday to Sunday, from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. The joy of the resurrection should shape everything about us as individuals and as a community. We should ask ourselves, do people look at me? Do people look at us as a church or as a community? And do they see joy? Uh, even if they don't agree with it or they don't agree with the reason for it, do they see joy uh, that we know and we have the bridegroom with us? I'll close with one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite books. This is from G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Uh, he's talking about, at the end of the book, uh, how the pagan world, Greek and Roman paganism, in a lot of ways is very similar to the modern world. Uh, he talks about how they would get happier and happier as they got closer to the earth, but sadder and sadder as they got closer to heaven. Uh, as they dealt with very serious and central matters of life, they had no real answers for it, and so there was despair at the center of the pagan life and the modern life. Even though on the outside you might have looked at it and said, wow, they look like they're having a lot of fun. And he says, Christianity is the opposite. For Christianity, uh, sadness is the exterior, but joy is the interior. Uh, because Christians know that even though suffering and sadness and loss is normal in this world, it's fundamentally abnormal. It's not the way the world is supposed to be, and it's not the way it's going to be. So here's the quote that I'll end with. He says, Man is more himself, man is more manlike, when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is, at best, an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. By the creed of Christianity, joy becomes something gigantic and sadness something small. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have continued to mope around as though this world uh, in its current state is all that there's ever going to be. As though uh, this world in its sadness and its brokenness is the best that you could do. Forgive us for the ways that we've been sinful in our, our grief and our lament and our self-regard. Teach us to be joyful uh, in having your son Jesus with us. Not in a cheesy way, not in a, a fake way, not in a way that buries our heads in the sands, but teach us to have a real, deep, true joy, even in the midst of darkness and sadness. Teach us the goodness of having Jesus with us. We pray in his name. Amen.